Welcome to Marx's Voice, bringing you ideas and analysis from Socialist Appeal, the Marxist voice of labour and youth. For regular updates, subscribe to our podcast through SoundCloud, iTunes or any major podcast provider. Or visit our website at www.socialist.net where you can donate and subscribe to our paper online and help support us in the struggle for socialism. Sunday the 23rd of July 1637 was no ordinary day in the city of Edinburgh in Scotland. In the Cathedral Church of St Giles, the most important uh, church in in Scotland, all the assembled uh, church and civil dignitaries of Scotland were assembled with a mass of people waiting in great expectation to hear the Sunday service. Now, this was no ordinary service. And this day was a turning point in the entire situation. For years, for the 11 years of tyranny which England had suffered under Charles I and the court clique, Charles had been busy carrying through a series of religious reforms, pushing an agenda which certainly was pushing the church in the direction of Roman Catholicism, in the direction of of open reaction. And he'd succeeded to a large extent in, in, in England, despite the fact that people found this, these changes, these innovations profoundly offensive. And there was resistance. Nevertheless, he, he succeeded, as I explained last week, through a vicious repression. He seemed to have everything under control. Him and his, his mate, uh, the, uh, William Lord, the Archbishop of, of Canterbury. And between the two of them, they'd cooked up a, a very important reform, a major reform, which is, was a reform of the most important book after the Bible in, in the Anglican Church, the Book of Common Prayer. Yes, they changed it in, 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 in a reactionary direction as far as, the, as, far, as far as the Puritans were concerned. And they got away with it. In England, they got away with it and puffed up with their own importance and supreme confidence they made a big mistake. They attempted to impose this Book of Common Prayer on the Church of Scotland. Now, anyone that's uh, slightly acquainted with the Scottish people, of who, for whom I have the most colossal respect, admiration, and, uh, and uh, sympathy, you will know, and of course the whole of history shows this, they're a very tough and resilient people, you know. And if there's one thing that is resented by these tough and resilient, independent-minded people, they don't like to be told what to do from London, from the people south of the border. They don't like this. And even less in the 70th century, above all, did they like being told, have uh, any interference, if you like, or which could affect the, the destiny of the of their eternal souls, interference in their religion. Now, uh, I think I should explain, it's not generally realized, but the Reformation in Scotland actually had gone far further than in England, south of the border, had gone further under the leadership of fiery Calvinists like John Knox in particular, a famous man, 
they went uh, far further. And James, James, King James, uh, Charles's father, only with the greatest difficulty, got them to accept, got the Church of Scotland to accept bishops. Didn't like bishops were not at all popular in Scotland. Well, they reluctantly acquiesced, and the, the whole thing had held together fairly well for a period of some decades. Until Charles and Lord came along with this new innovation, and that proved to be the breaking point in every sense of the word. The beginning of a revolution, oh yes, started on that fateful Sunday in the church cathedral of, of St. Giles. The dean, of course, dressed up in his surplus, his, his, his uh, posh gear, his uh, robes, investments, and so on, proudly strode up to the pulpit, took up this book, opened it, but before he could open his mouth to even pronounce the first words from this book, a, a cry went up. The mass is among us. A pope, a pope, the Antichrist is here. And then it started. Then it started. Interestingly enough, the, uh, the observers, I'll quote in a moment from, from one of them. The observers quote that there were a lot of people of the meaner sort. The rabble, the poor people, in other words, that's the kind of language they use. Ordinary poor people. And interestingly enough, a large number of them were women. And it was women that started the riot because that's where it was. They started to throw things at the, at the dean. They started to throw Bibles at him. Now, you might find that funny. It's not funny at all because the Bibles in those days were heavy uh, things, heavy implements. If you were struck with one of those Bibles, you'd know all about it. They hurled abuse, they cursed, they shouted, they accused him of being anti-antichrist, anti, anti and a riot began. And even when the bishop uh, stood up and attempted to restore order, he failed miserably. And the riot continued. You have got a, a, quite a good description here by the historian David Hume. I've quoted him before. Quite a nice description. I'll just quote, if, if I may. In the Cathedral Church of St. Giles, the Dean of Edinburgh, arrayed in his surplus, began the service. The bishop himself and many of the Privy Council being present. That's the, the, the top guys, the, the top dogs of the Scottish uh, regime. But no sooner had the, had the dean opened the book than a multitude of the meanest sort, that's what I mean, the meanest sort, most of them women, there you are, clapping their hands, cursing and crying out, a pope, a pope, antichrist, stone him raised such, such a tumult that it was impossible uh, for, for, to, to proceed with the service. The bishop, this again is the top man, the top dog, the, the bishop mounting the pulpit in order to appease the populace had a, stu a stool thrown at him. The council, the, council, the council was insulted and it was with difficulty that the, that the magistrates were able, partly by authority, partly by force, to expel the rabble and to shut the doors against it. Just imagine, a riot in the, in the cathedral. Uh, absolute two, absolute, uh, the cops are called in, in the end. And only with great difficulty they succeeded in forcing these people, the rabble as he calls them, through the doors and slammed the doors and bolted the doors after them. That didn't, the matter didn't stop there, however. It goes on, him goes on. The tumult, however, still continued without, without outside the building, that is. Stones were thrown at the doors and the windows. And when, this, when the service was ended, 
the bishop going home was attacked and narrowly escaped from the hands of the enraged multitude. Just get a load of that. It goes on. In the afternoon, the privy seal, that's one of the prominent officials, the privy seal, because he carried the bishop in his coach, was so pelted with stones and hooted, hooted at with execrations and pressed upon by the, by the, the eager populace, that if his, if his servants with drawn swords had not kept them off, the bishop's life had been exposed to the gravest danger. And the great multitudes resorted to Edinburgh in order to oppose the introduction of so hated a novelty. Now, this is the start of something they never expected. You see, Charles and Lord went too far in their excessive, in their hubris, they went too far. And of course, the people of Scotland were well provoked. This uh, riot, that's what it is, all a full-scale riot, both inside the Keithreath and in all the streets of Edinburgh, then they were it was reported they were roving, roving, roving gangs of enraged people attacking, uh, particularly vicious were attacked. And this spread throughout the whole of Scotland. It, it spread like wildfire throughout Scotland, every town and, and village. Bishops were attacked in the streets. They were dragged from their carriages. They were beaten up. Some of them were killed. And the whole thing, the whole thing, if you like, it, it was as if, it was as if uh, an enormous... Uh, Gunpowder keg had, had been, the fuse had been lit and it had exploded. And what you have there is the accumulation of discontent. It's a dialectical process, if you like, the accumulation of enormous discontent. Suddenly reaches the tipping point, and this is it, this is the tipping point. And here you have really the beginnings of revolution, starting in Scotland. Yes, Scotland very soon, very quickly, was in a state, in a, in a state of open insurrection, starting in the churches, the religious question, it, it, it touched people in a very sensitive spot. They couldn't, they couldn't, they tried after this, to, they tried to impose the new service or the new uh, Book of Common Prayer. They couldn't do it. They couldn't do it. Everywhere, what happened in St. Giles was repeated. <laughs> it was one bishop, the Bishop of Brechen, I believe. Must have been a tough, a tough old bird. He's reported to have given his service and he, he succeeded in finishing it with two law, he, as he glared at the congregation with two loaded pistols <laughs> on the table, on the communion table, I suppose, I don't know where. So that if the Almighty didn't come to his aid, the two pistols would have come in very handy. And even so, Hume said that on the way out, when he tried to get out, he was almost, maybe, he almost lost his life to the enraged crowd that was waiting for him to, uh, to come out. Scotland was in a state of insurrection. It spread like wildfire. And this insurrection, this, this tumultuous move where the masses, that's the point. The masses moved into action. The people of the meaner sort, the rabble, as they referred to them, the ordinary people, moved into, into action on, on this issue. And the movement got organized around, around something known as the, the Covenant, the National Covenant, which was a document drawn up pledged to resist any, any attempt to change the religion in Scotland and demanding that bishops should not only be removed, but should be excommunicated. And this was done. This was done. They defied uh, everything. Defied, uh, Charles in particular was defied. They expelled all bishops from Scotland. One of them mourned, you know, that uh, everything that we've achieved over the last three decades has been wiped out in a matter of days. This, this very tentative... Uh, 
fragile compromise that was reached with with James over the bishops in Scotland. The bishops were expelled from Scotland. They had to flee for their lives. Oh yes, their lives were in danger at this. They fled to the south. They fled south. They fled to London and 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 ended up with uh, with graves in uh, south of the border. They could never go back. Now this was an open uh, challenge to. Uh, to Charles, to Charles's authority. Now he, the, he he had a choice, you know. He had a choice. He always got a choice in life. He could either retreat on this uh, religious question, or it would be war with Scotland. Uh, clear choice. Charles being Charles, he could have retreated. He could have been sensible, but no, Charles was not not going to retreat. He decided on the latter course of action. Now, at this point, you see, I must make a small aside here. The, the idea is that history, all history, is that these, these postmodernist idiots and gossip historians, the two, most of them are gossip historians, worthless, trashy historians, actually. That all of history is determined by individuals and uh, their caprices and their characters and their foibles and so on. In that sense, you could say the whole thing was caused by Charles's obstinacy and his uh, vanity and his aloofness, all this is. Now, there's an element of truth. In that, yes, yeah, but that's that doesn't explain anything really. No, there's a whole concatenation of, of circumstances here and objective factors beyond the control of Charles or anybody else. It would, have, if it would have been another person other than Charles, there still more or less would have been the same result. But Charles definitely accelerated this process because of his his whole psychology. Yeah, but even the psychology that cannot be considered as, as an individual thing. Charles's psychology and his mentality was reflecting what it was reflecting, the whole, the whole ethos, the whole conception of the divine right of kings, yeah? okay, of absolutism. He was the personification of absolutism, if you like, personification of an ideal, of a spirit, of an historic spirit, as, as Hegel might have, might have said. Yeah, but he, he determined, oh, he was enraged, he felt humiliated, he was humiliated, and he decided that he was going to raise an army, which he was in a position to do now, because of all the what I discussed last time, the various ways that he means of had of raising cash that by arbitrary illegal means, he'd accumulated quite a lot of money. He had about uh, at least two hundred thousand pounds, if my memory serves me correctly. He had in the, in the kitty. He could use this plus what he could then borrow and raise in loans and so on. He raised an army. Oh yes. Quite a strong army, about 20,000, I think. Quite a strong army. And navy, too, because he was going to engage in a three-pronged three attack. One from the south, one from the sea, and one from the, he hoped, from the clans in the north who were going to support him. So he assumed, wrongly, at this stage. This army uh, set out in, uh, in, in, in uh, 1639. It set out in early in the in the spring of sixteen was sent north, and originally Charles's uh, idea was he was always full of bright ideas, that the very sight of this, the very fear of this force, this massive force of uh, soldiers, of artillery, of cavalry, and so on, that would be sufficient to frighten the Scots into submission. The very very threat of an invasion would be would be enough. Bad mistake, bad mistake, because the Scots by this time were thoroughly roused. This movement of the, Com the Covenant, the Covenanters movement, now became a mass movement. 
The covenant itself, this document circulated in every village, in every town of Scotland. It was signed by thousands and thousands of people. I've got a little quote here somewhere, I think, by, uh, yes, by C.V. Wedgwood. Here it is. In the next few weeks, copies of, of the covenant were carried around every town and village in Scotland. Everywhere, crowds of people uh, queued, queued at the doors of the churches to sign it. In the words of one minister, this is quite interesting, one minister, I quote, I have seen more than a thousand at once, more than a thousand at once, uh, lifting up their heads and the tears flowing down their, flowing down their eyes as they signed this document. What we, are, what we are describing here is a revolutionary situation and a revolutionary movement. Now, you see, one element which Charles completely overlooked is something that Napoleon once said, and Napoleon knew something about warfare. He said, in warfare, the moral to the physical is as three to one. That's to say, the element of morale is decisive in warfare. And that was a big problem for Charles because he raised an army, and he cobbled together an army, not a very satisfactory army, as it turned out. Most of them were useless. And the officers also were as useless as the men, as it turned out. Uh, they were not really fit for, fit for purpose. Uh, in fact, the fact of the matter was this war was deeply unpopular uh, with the people in England, deeply unpopular. Yeah. If anything, people had sympathy with the Scots. It was Lenin, what Lenin would, would, would describe as revolutionary defeatism. We weren't in favor of uh, invading Scotland. And the troops also, I mean, they were anxious to get pay and loot. Yes, of course. They were, mercenaries, but they weren't anxious to fight or to lose their lives in a cause which they didn't really believe in. Neither the men nor the soldiers were very keen on the, on the actual principles of this war. So Charles, assembled, first of all, he assembled his forces at York. He issued a proclamation they assembled at York. And he waited. And he waited for the Scots to send a sign of their submission. And he waited, and he waited, and he waited, and no, no such message ever came. And therefore, very reluctantly, he proceeded, his army proceeded north, northwards towards the border, where they were met by a force of covenanters. These are not mercenaries. These are ordinary citizens' army, a revolutionary army, if you like, stirred up by revolutionary and religious zeal, and led by quite a competent general, Alexander Leslie, who was a renowned general who made his reputation in the Thirty Years' War on the continent. So he's a man that knew a bit about warfare too. He knew a few tricks, which he used to great effect by all accounts. And without going into much detail about it, on the first encounter near the border, where a, a, a body of English troops were sent out to explore the terrain, about 5,000, I think, were sent out to see what this goes, they just caught sight of the Scottish army, and they ran like rabbits. They, they didn't panic. They thought the army was far bigger than what it was. It, it is said that Leslie used a trick which he'd learned, that behind his troops he had a herd of cows to make it look bigger. I don't know if that's maybe just a story. But anyway, the English were so uh, frightened that they panicked and they ran. They ran shouting, the, go back, go back. And of course, this, <laughs> this caused a panic with the other soldiers. And there was a general, uh, keepers, the French say. Uh, let the man, uh, or every man for himself, and let the devil take, take the height. They fled like rabbits. It was a disgraceful sight. This, of course, in turn, enormously boosted the morale of the Scots. 
it was a disgraceful defeat. It was an absolute humiliation. And Charles was subsequently forced to sign a humiliation document called the Pacification of Berwick, which was virtually, virtually a surrender to the Scots. The Scots were triumphant. Of course, everybody realized in their heart of hearts that this document was not going to really solve the problem and that nothing had really been solved. Certainly not on Charles's part. He, he must have come back to London like a dog with his tail, a whipped dog with, with his tail between his legs, humiliated, you know. And of course, his army didn't last two minutes. It just disintegrated. These guys, as I say, were only held together by one thing, and that's pay and the prospect of plunder. Well, they, they didn't get either, neither pay nor plunder. So it just collapsed. The army disintegrated. She was a king without an army, yes, but a king eaten up with a burning desire for revenge. Now, we come back to the same old problem we've discussed so many times. Where does a king get money to raise an army? And there's only one answer to that. After, and therefore, after 11 years of, of tyranny of, of one man rule, Charles was, was compelled to call a parliament. I think it was in late... Uh, Late, late 1639, he decided to call, which became known historically as the Short Parliament. By God, it was so short, it only lasted about three weeks. But he was confident, he must have been a little bit naive in some respects. Charles believed that because now there was a national war against, there was a serious risk that Scots, the Scottish enemy would invade English soil and so on and so forth, that the Parliament would. Uh, give him some money, would come across, would, would unite to the national banner, you know, the, the, the banner of national, uh, national unity. Well, no such thing. Elections were held. And once again, as happened even more than in 1628, which I commented last time, the composition of the new parliament was, was not at all to Charles like. There were the, the rebel faction, the... Uh, the uh, opposition, if you like, was far stiffer and far stronger this time than the last time. And instead of giving him money, he demanded a large, I think he demanded 750,000 pounds, three quarters of a million pounds, which he wanted to, to raise an army. You see, and again, the parliamentarians were no fools. For a start, they were more sympathetic to the Scots than to the king. From a religious point of view, most of the, the bourgeois in Paris, they're Presbyterians, like the Scots. And they didn't like bishops either. And so therefore, why should they give Charles money to raise an army to build chains for themselves in effect? Oh, no, they weren't going to do that. What they did do was to present a series of demands and criticisms, and so which Charles didn't like at all. Uh, they said, he, he even offered, actually, offered as a concession. He said, look, you want me to abolish ship money? Well, I'll abolish ship money if you give me money for the war, which they refused. Whereupon he, of course, did what he always uh, used to do. He dissolved Parliament. And then he looked at it and he was, he was reduced to the humiliation of beg, borrow and steal to get money to raise a new army, which eventually scraped together. Enough funds. Um, it is said that a large amount of these donations came from Catholics, wealthy Catholics. That's possible. I don't know whether it can be demonstrated, but that was the idea that was, was going on. And Charles decided, given the emergency situation, that he would have to recall his uh, advisor, his principal counsellor, uh, Thomas Wentworth, the Earl of Stratford, from Ireland. 
that she came a bit uh, reluctantly. But uh, Stratford actually encouraged Charles to uh, attack the Scots as soon as possible and to strike a blow, in effect, to, to re-establish his authority. He actually wrote to the king, and I quote, Your Majesty has an army in Ireland which may help you to reduce this kingdom. Yes, those lines got him into serious trouble later on because uh, his enemies uh, quite correctly pointed out <clears throat> the question is, what kingdom are you referring to that you want to subject? Is it Scotland or is it England? Very important question, which of course uh, Strafford was not really able to answer. Anyway, Strafford was, was, was left carrying the baby here to lead the forces north. And of course, history just repeated itself. The English army entered uh, the, the north of Scotland in uh, the summer of uh, 16, 1640, this is now, 1640. This, the second bishops were, these, these wars are known as the bishops' wars for self-evident reasons. And history just repeated itself, you know, I mean, uh, again, uh, Leslie, the Scottish commander, showed his superiority as, as a commander. His army was actually of a, of a similar size to Charles's army, and he was uh, inferior in cavalry. So, by all the laws, I suppose you could say, if it was just, if it was just numbers, Charles should have should have won, but he didn't. Apparently, Alexander uh, Leslie used the trick of he didn't have much cannon, but the cannon that he had a lot of small cannon, which could only be used a few times before it blew up. So he decided to put all his artillery in one fell swoop, one blistering barrage right at the commencement of the battle. It frightened the, so frightened the English artillerymen that they, they abandoned their cannons and fled. And again, the same thing happened. They spread panic among the cavalry, among the other sections. And the whole English army fled like rabbits. And the Scots advanced slowly but surely. And they advanced south of the border. The king fled to York. And Leslie's army was advancing on Newcastle. Actually, a force was sent from Newcastle to meet him to try to head off the uh, advance of the Scots. <laughs> that was quite, uh, quite an amusing uh, episode. The Scots sent a letter. This, is, this happened quite often uh, this time in history. They sent a, a, a very servile letter saying, saying to the English, look, uh, look, boys, we're not really invading. They just crossed the border for Christ's sake, a big, big army. We're not really invading England, you know. All we want to do is to pre present a, com a, a petition to His Majesty the, the King, if you can believe that. Well, the commander of the English forces certainly didn't believe it, but when he tried to fight the Scots, again, his troops melted away. They, they deserted. They ran. They ran back to Newcastle. And even that wasn't sufficiently safe for them, they thought. So they then fled further down to, um, to Durham. And even that they didn't think was safe enough, so they fled from Durham to York. So the Scottish army, believe it or not, advanced unopposed. It's, in the moment of truth, Charles's army was revealed as a rabble of untrained, unserviceable people. In any case, there was a political question. Again, they did not want to fight the Scots. There's no enthusiasm, there's no interest. That's the difference between a mercenary army, a reactionary mercenary army, the counter-revolution, and a, a revolutionary. Although the Scots troops were untrained also, they were untrained, they were volunteers. Yeah, but like the French revolutionary armies, they were uh, fighting for a cause. They were fighting a defensive war, first of all, to defend their homeland and the, also their religion as they would see it. 
and they were fired up. They were willing to fight and die. The others were not. So therefore, again, Charles' army proved to be a, a useless, a broken reed. It just broke in pieces, broke in his hands, leaving him with nothing. And the Scots army advanced. They reached Newcastle. And to their astonishment, let's just imagine they must have been amazed, to Leslie's astonishment, he found that the city was undefended. The garrison had fled. And it's an actual fact. The Scottish troops occupied Newcastle without any resistance at all. They took it over. Simple as that. They then proceeded further south and they occupied also Durham. Again, without any resistance. Imagine a, 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 a foreign army, because Scot Scotland was not part of Britain, they were, they were an independent country. Although, paradoxically, it's an independent country with one king, because Charles was the king of Scotland as well as, as England. But here's a foreign army that has invaded and is occupying two important English cities without any problem. What really astonished the, the population, or the English population in Newcastle and uh, Durham, was the behavior of the Scots. They must have been trembling, they must have been terrified that the Scots barbarians were going to come in burning and ra raping and killing and looting. Nothing of the sort. The Covenanter forces entered with uh, Newcastle with exemplary discipline. There was no looting, there was no attacks on the civilian population. Everything that they used, they paid for. And this was, at that time in history, is virtually unknown. Again, the conduct of a revolutionary army. Although it's true, of course, I, must, I hasten to add, that at a later date they sent the bill for this to, to King Charles. Naturally, of course, they were going to pay for all this. And once again, look, if, if the uh, pacification of Berwick was a humiliating treaty, the treaty that he now had to sign after the Second Bishop's War, the Treaty of Ripon, that was crushingly humiliating. He had to accept everything, every single thing that he didn't want to accept. That the Scottish people alone could determine their religion without any inf interference from Britain, that the bishops had to be removed from Scotland and excommunicated and so on. And lots of, oh, and by the way, one of the PS, they demanded that the army, the Scottish army that was, of occupation, that was occupying English territories, occupying uh, Newcastle and, uh, and Durham, would have to be paid. <laughs> the English had to pay the wages of the, of the occupying forces. That's a nice one, isn't it? I think it was about uh, 850 pounds a day. It was a lot of money in those days, which he had to agree to. He signed this thing. Now just imagine, you see, this is a turning point. One could say, and I think it would be correct to say, that the English Revolution began in Scotland, as a matter of fact. That's a, a fair assumption. It went far further than in England, but we're going to deal with that in the next couple of, uh, of, of, of episodes. But you see, now put yourself in Charles's shoes. What is he to do now? The, the treasury is empty. Once again, his credit is all used up. He can't borrow. He can't borrow a single cent. He's borrowed enough. He borrowed enough as it is. His army's fallen to pieces. His king without an army. What to do? And even Strafford at that time, and even Archbishop Lord at that time, was alarmed at the situation in Scotland. It was obviously completely out of control. And both Strafford and Lord were saying to Charles, for Christ's sake, you've got to call a parliament. There is absolutely no way about it. And this was what was done. That was a decisive turning point. 
when Charles convened what became known as the Long Parliament, that was the parliament that led directly to the path of civil war and revolution in England. And that's the scene that is now set for the, for the next very important chapter, which we'll deal with, begin to deal with next week. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Marx's Voice. You can subscribe to our podcast through SoundCloud, iTunes, or any major podcast provider. Or visit our website at www.socialist.net. And if you're able to, please donate or subscribe online and help support us in the struggle for socialism.